Good morning. It's Wednesday, November 18th. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. The Wayne County Board of Canvassers in Michigan unanimously voted to certify the results of the presidential election. But for a few hours yesterday, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. In an unprecedented move, the Republican members on the board followed President Trump's lead, claiming without evidence that there were voting irregularities. Wayne County includes the city of Detroit, which played a big part in Joe Biden's presidential victory. He won the county by 300,000 votes, but Biden only won the state of Michigan by just over 140,000 votes. The Detroit Free Press reports Wayne County's board of canvassers is evenly split between two Democrats and two Republicans. Well, at 6 p.m. yesterday, Republican members said they would not vote to certify the results. Monica Palmer, who is one of the Republicans on the board of canvassers, even proposed withholding certification for just Detroit, which has a significant black population, but not nearby communities like Livonia, which is majority white. Michigan's Republican Party praised the Republican board members for choosing to withhold certification for the county. And President Trump joined in, too. In a series of tweets, Trump cited the courage of Michigan election officials, saying, quote, flip Michigan back to Trump. But the pushback was swift. 300 members of the public flooded the board's hearing on Zoom. And after the deliberation, all four members of the board ultimately agreed to vote in favor of certifying the results. And they also called on Michigan's Secretary of State to conduct an independent audit of any discrepancies. The events in Michigan underscore President Trump's refusal to accept the results of the presidential election. His campaign is still actively pursuing lawsuits that are seeking to invalidate votes. In Wisconsin, Nevada and Arizona, Trump's chances are running up against state deadlines to certify the election results. The Wall Street Journal lists the campaign's efforts in multiple states if you want to read more. Now, Rudy Giuliani who has taken over the president's legal efforts, was citing unfounded claims of voter fraud and lack of access for Republican election observers in federal court yesterday. That's where he was arguing 700,000 Pennsylvania absentee ballots should be thrown out. Meanwhile, in a similar case, the state Supreme Court found in Philadelphia the vote count was run without any problems. Amid all of this... The person in charge of safeguarding our elections was fired yesterday by the president. Christopher Krebs was the chief of the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. His team is responsible for protecting national voting infrastructure. Late last week, he said the 2020 election was, quote, the most secure in American history. And according to Politico, President Trump took issue with that statement. He announced Krebs' termination on Twitter. Politico describes Krebs as one of the few Trump appointees with nearly universal bipartisan support. Democrats and even some Republicans expressed concern when they heard he got fired. In a statement, Republican Senator Ben Sass said, the president is, quote, retaliating against Krebs for doing his duty. So many people in the U.S. are still waiting for federal relief funds to help them pay rent or keep their businesses afloat during the pandemic. It's been eight months since Congress passed the CARES Act. And as The Washington Post reports, a lot of that money is still being held up at the local level. But here's the catch. 
If local governments don't distribute the money before December 30th, they'll have to return it to the federal government. Now, some background here. The CARES Act allocated $150 billion in COVID-19 relief funding to state and local governments for things like access to testing, rental assistance, and small business loans. But in some smaller counties and cities, they had to wait for their state governments to allocate funds to them, which held things up. And The Washington Post reports in some places, the funding got even more delayed because of disagreements between governors, state legislatures and state officials. According to the International City County Management Association, as of July, only one third of cities and counties got any funding. And the executive director of the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative tells The Washington Post, after waiting months, it was only in the fall that many of its municipalities got any money. One city in Georgia didn't get its CARES Act funds until October 1st, and by then, more than 2,000 residents fell behind on power bill payments. To keep people's lights on, the town's mayor had to make arrangements with the local utility company. Another issue that some places are facing is the logistics of getting the money to the people who need it. The Post writes about Bear County, Texas, where officials have spent up to 16 hours a day trying to figure out if they can apply the federal funding to existing programs or if they have to create new ones. They said they reached out to the Treasury Department with questions about what kinds of documents are needed for rental assistance and how small businesses could spend their relief money. But those questions went unanswered for weeks. And the big point here, as we mentioned earlier, If this money is not spent by December 30th, it has to be returned to the federal government. There's currently a bipartisan bill to extend the deadline, but it's been sitting in a Senate committee since August. San Francisco is trying to reduce the wealth gap with a new law dubbed the CEO tax or Proposition L. People in the city overwhelmingly voted in favor of the proposition earlier this month, and soon, some companies in this tech-rich city will pay higher taxes if the difference between what executives and median workers earn is too great. Quartz explains how San Francisco's CEO tax will work. It applies to companies where the highest paid employee makes at least 100 times more than the median worker, and it hits those companies with a higher tax on its gross receipts. The greater the inequality, the bigger the tax. It's expected to bring in between $60 million and $140 million per year for the city. And I know what you're thinking. Those big tech companies based in the city are going to be hit hard with this tax. But San Francisco's chief economist says not exactly. Quartz reports it's much more likely that retailers, hotels, and grocery stores in the city will end up paying more in CEO taxes. Public filings show companies headquartered or operating in San Francisco with some of the highest CEO-to-worker ratios include McDonald's. Levi's and Wells Fargo. In the U.S., the pay gap between executives and workers is the biggest in the world. Quartz points out income inequality grew in recent decades as C-suite compensation skyrocketed. According to the Economic Policy Institute, from 1978 to now, the average worker's pay went up 12 percent, while executive pay went up 940 percent. But Quartz warns this isn't the most direct way to close the income gap. The CEO tax may miss all the varied ways these rich executives get money. 
Compensation packages typically include stocks and bonuses and other creative payment structures. Critics argue the CEO tax may dissuade companies from setting up shop in the city. You know what they say, Duarte, winter is coming. And during COVID, that might just be a scarier prospect than White Walkers. You are such a Game of Thrones fan. <laughs> you know, over the summer, a lot of us were able to figure out ways to make our lives work outdoors. You know, meet up with friends and family safely in the open. But now that's going to get a lot harder. The Washington Post's food critic, Tom Sitsima, has been thinking a lot about what colder weather will mean for our outdoor dining, especially in the winter. Sitsuma writes that he's determined to continue eating outside for as long as he can. So he went looking for advice from people who embrace rather than endure the cold season. He spoke to the ambassador from Finland who says that the Finns don't think that any weather is bad. Finnish children are encouraged to play outside regardless of the temperature. And one of the country's most beloved traditions is sitting in a hot sauna and then plunging into cold water. Sitsima also looked to Denmark. People there embrace a concept called hugu. It loosely translates into being cozy. Even when the winters are cold and dark, Danes have a cozy pastime. They throw on sweatpants, get under a soft blanket, light a few candles, pour a cup of hot chocolate, and just chill. Wayne White is a researcher who frequents the South Pole. And when Sitsima called him, the temperature there was 60 degrees below zero. And White says it can get even colder. It can drop to 105 degrees below zero there. But nevertheless, White says he has not missed a single day outside. He has walked around 4,000 miles during his three stints in the South Pole. But if you're not as extreme as that South Pole researcher, Sitsima says don't give up on outdoor dining yet. Instead, BYOB, bring your own blanket. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. Stay cozy. We'll talk with you again tomorrow.